Section 2 of Letters to Dead Authors. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wendy Almeida. Letters to Dead Authors. Andrew Lang. To Charles Dickens. Sir? It has been said that every man is born a Platonist or an Aristotelian, though the enormous majority of us, to be sure, live and die without being conscious of any invidious philosophic partiality whatever. With more truth, though that does not imply very much, every Englishman who reads may be said to be a partisan of yourself or of Mr. Thackeray. Why should there be any partisanship in the matter? And why, having two such good things as your novels and those of your contemporary, should we not be silently happy in the possession? Well, men are made so, and must needs fight and argue over their tastes and enjoyment. For myself, I may say that in this matter I am what the Americans do not call a mugwump, what English politicians dub a superior person, that is, I take no side and attempt to enjoy the best of both. It must be owned that this attitude is sometimes made a little difficult by the vigor of your special devotees. They have ceased, indeed, thank heaven, to imitate you, and even in descriptive articles, the touch of Mr. Gigadibs, of him whom we almost took for the true Dickens, has disappeared. The young lions of the press no longer mimic your less admirable mannerisms. Do not strain so much after fantastic comparisons. Do not, in your manner and Mr. Carlyle's, give people nicknames derived from their teeth or their complexion. And generally we are spared second-hand copies of all that in your style was least to be commended but though improved by lapse of time in this respect your devotees still put on little conscious airs of virtue robust manliness and so forth which would have irritated you very much and there survive some pressmen who seem to have read you a little especially your later works and never to have read anything else now familiarity with the pages of our mutual friend and dombey and son does not precisely constitute a liberal education and the assumption that it does is apt quite unreasonably to prejudice people against the greatest comic genius of modern times on the other hand time is at last beginning to sift the true admirers of dickens from the false Yours, sir, in the best sense of the word, is a popular success, a popular reputation. For example, I know that in a remote and even Pictish part of this kingdom, a rural household, humble and under the shadow of a sorrow inevitably approaching, has found in David Copperfield oblivion of winter, of sorrow, and of sickness. On the other hand, people are now picking up heart to say that they cannot read Dickens, and that they particularly detest Pickwick. I believe it was young ladies who first had the courage of their convictions in this respect. Tu si au bel, and the fair in the confidence of youth often venture on remarkable confessions. In your natural history of young ladies, I do not remember that you describe the humorous young lady. She is a very rare bird indeed, 
and humour generally is at a deplorably low level in england hence come all sorts of mischief arisen since you left us and it may be said that inordinate philanthropy genteel sympathy with irish murder and arson societies for badgering the poor esoteric buddhism and a score of other plagues including what was once called aestheticism are all primarily due to want of humour people discuss with the gravest faces matters which properly should only be stated as the wildest paradoxes it naturally follows that in a period almost destitute of humour many respectable persons cannot read dickens and are not ashamed to glory in their shame we ought not to be angry with others for their misfortunes and yet when one meets the cretans who boast that they cannot read dickens one certainly does feel much as mr samuel weller felt when he encountered mr job trotter how very singular has been the history of the decline of humour is there any profound psychological truth to be gathered from consideration of the fact that humour has gone out with cruelty a hundred years ago eighty years ago nay fifty years ago we were a cruel but also a humorous people we had bull-baitings and badger-drawings and hustings and prize-fights and cock-fights we went to see men hanged the pillory and the stocks were no empty terrors unto evil-doers for there was commonly a malefactor occupying each of these institutions with all this we had a broad-blown comic sense we had hogarth and bunbury and george cruikshank and gilray we had leech and surtees and the creator of tittlebat titmouse we had the shepherd of the notes and above all we had you from the old giants of english fun burly persons delighting in broad caricature in decided colours in cockney jokes in swashing blows at the more prominent and obvious human follies from these you derived the splendid high spirits and unhesitating mirth of your earlier works mr squeers and sam weller and mrs gamp and all the pickwickians and mr dowler and john browdie these and their immortal companions were reared so to speak on the beef and beer of that naughty fox-hunting badger-baiting old england which we have improved out of existence and these characters assuredly are your best by them though stupid people cannot read about them you will live while there is a laugh left among us perhaps that does not assure you a very prolonged existence but only the future can show the dismal seriousness of the time cannot let us hope last for ever and a day honest old laughter the true lutin of your inspiration must have life left in him yet and cannot die though it is true that the taste for your pathos and your melodrama and plots constructed after your favourite fashion great expectations and the tale of two cities are exceptions may go by and never be regretted were people simpler or only less clear-sighted as far as your pathos is concerned a generation ago geoffrey the hard-headed shallow critic who declared that wordsworth would never do cried wept like anything over your little nell 
one still laughs as heartily as ever with dick swiveller but who can cry over little nell ah oh, sir how could you who knew so intimately who remembered so strangely well the fancies the dreams the sufferings of childhood how could you wallow naked in the pathetic and massacre holocausts of the innocents to draw tears by gloating over a child's deathbed was it worthy of you was it the kind of work over which our hearts should melt i confess that little nell might die a dozen times and be welcomed by whole legions of angels and i like the bereaved fowl mentioned by pet marjorie would remain unmoved she was more than usual calm she did not give a single damn wrote the astonishing child who diverted the leisure of scott over your little nell and your little dombey i remain more than usual calm and probably so do thousands of your most sincere admirers but about matter of this kind and the unsealing of the fountains of tears who can argue where is taste where is truth what tears are manly sir manly as fred bayham has it and of what lamentations ought we rather to be ashamed sunt lacrime rerum one has been moved in the cell where socrates tasted the hemlock or by the river banks where syracusan arrows slew the parched athenians among the mire and blood or in fiction when colonel newcomb said oddsome or over the diary of claire doria forey or where aramis laments with strange tears the death of porthos but over dombey the sun or little nell one declines to snivel when an author deliberately sits down and says now let us have a good cry he poisons the wells of sensibility and chokes at least in many breasts the fountain of tears out of dombey and son there is little we care to remember except the deathless mr toots just as we forget the melodramatics of martin chuzzlewit i have read in that book a score of times i never see it but i revel in it in pecksniff and mrs gamp and the americans but what the plot is all about what jonas did what montague tigg had to make in the matter what all the pictures with plenty of shading illustrate i have never been able to comprehend in the same way one of your most thoroughgoing admirers has allowed in the license of private conversation that ralph nickleby and monk are too steep and probably a cultivated taste will always find them a little precipitous too steep the slang expresses that defect of an ardent genius carried above itself and out of the air we breathe both in its grotesque and in its gloomy imaginations to force the note to press fantasy too hard to deepen the gloom with black over the indigo that was the failing which proved you mortal to take an instance in little when pip went to mr pumblechooks the boy thought the seedsman a very happy man to have so many little drawers in his shop the reflection is thoroughly boyish but then you add i 
wonder whether the flower seeds and bulbs ever wanted of a fine day to break out of those jails and bloom that is not boyish at all that is the hard-driven jaded literary fancy at work so we arraign her but she the genius of charles dickens how brilliant how kindly how beneficent she is dwelling by a fountain of laughter imperishable though there is something of an alien salt in the neighboring fountain of tears how poor the world of fancy would be how dispeopled of her dreams if in some ruin of the social system the books of dickens were lost and if the dodger and charlie bates and mr crinkle and miss squeers and sam weller and mrs gamp and dick swiveller were to perish or to vanish with menander's men and women we cannot think of our world without them and children of dreams as they are they seem more essential than great statesmen artists soldiers who have actually worn flesh and blood ribbons and orders gowns and uniforms may we not almost welcome free education for every englishman who can read unless he be an ass is a reader the more for you end of section two